So good morning. How how you guys doing? Uh good. Good. Yeah. Is it early? Yeah, it's it just feels early. I just I had my breakfast, but uh I'm just getting started. I'm still a little jet lagged. So last night was better than the night before. So at least I got more hours of sleep, but I woke up every two hours just to remind me that I wasn't sleeping well. What's the time difference in India? It's gonna be like twelve to fourteen hours, right? Um, it's not as bad as that. It's ten and a half. Oh, okay. So it's it's a little like it's, I generally just you know change AM to PM and then subtract at ninety minutes. <laughs> so so what it'd be like six thirty PM now. That's like the end of the day. So your day's reversed from what it was last week. Yeah, people warned me that it would be worse coming back um, than going there because going there it really is like you just need like a day to adjust. But coming back, people told me it would be worse, and, and I think they were right. How was India? It was good. I mean, it's uh, we weren't there for super long. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's not like I sold whole whole country or anything, but I'm we had a good time seeing the parts we got to see. And then uh, later this week, I'll be up in New York for Brooklyn JS. So I've got to write my talk for that. Nice. I'm going to talk about testing in JavaScript. I don't think anyone, a lot of people don't test at all in JavaScript. It's just something that, Especially, I think it's interesting because the Ruby community has been talking a lot about testing lately because, you know, because DHH got bored and decided to make everybody mad. So, so that's kind of fun because that, you know, my kind of my talk for the year is about testing. So I started, you know, back at when Technically Philly had the network event, I did a testing talk there, just a short one. Um, and then I'm doing this one this week. Uh, next month, I'll be at QCon and in Minneapolis in August. So. What is Q? Um, it's one. It's um, it's a. Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of like ET, where it's a like has a bunch of different tracks, um, and is kind of language agnostic. It has uh, people who uh, from some of the listeners I'm on said they've been and they liked it, and so that's how I ended up getting clued into it. I'm I'm excited to check it out. Plus, I'm plus it's in New York, so it's not a huge deal of travel. So that that's nice. Uh, what um what testing uh framework in javascript is like de facto for you pretty much jasmine um i also have a fondness for for mocha but i think mocha it just it makes more sense when you're doing um just a single page app or just like a solidly javascript application and just because i'm doing more real stuff right now jasmine you know just plugs and plays uh so and honestly when you write uh jasmine and mocha they're decently interchangeable uh, so it's pretty nice. But if I'm doing something where I'm like just adding tests, I'll kind of lean toward Mocha. But when I teach beginners, I teach uh, Jasmine because you can just download um, a zip folder and uh, uh, open up an index HTML page and just start writing your test right there. So it makes sense to beginners who are just doing mostly have done HTML and CSS and aren't, you know, used to the idea of JavaScript as a programming language. So it's, it's helpful to them to actually see it run in the browser versus, you know, jumping to the command line, uh, which is, you know, where Mocha might win. Yeah, I had an experience, experience pairing on the game of life at a code retreat uh, with a JavaScript developer. And my intuition was open up node, or open up a editor and write a node script that does TDD against some, some other node file. Uh, and then run it from the command line. And then we, the next pair, I did JavaScript also. We used uh, index.html with, with some tests that automatically ran and you open it up and it had a green circle for how many are finished and it showed all the check marks. And I think that was much more intuitive for somebody new to TDD. 
and uh, probably probably used to web, web development and not necessarily server side development. Yeah, I think it it helps make sense. Uh, so I'm I'm looking at the our our yieldy list of of links, which I think uh, maybe we should. Uh, I guess well when we when we publish the podcast, you should put them in the show notes whenever we mention an article yes. or something. Um, but uh, but Len, you posted the 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 Twitter the if it's e from uh, Blader the if it's easier to raise than hire, it might be a bubble. Right. Um, that was a, a trolley I, a trolley topic for debate. I mean, what what else are we going to talk about at eight in the morning? Right. I don't know. I feel like, like people have been talking about that for like the last two years. So, you know, being a bubble. Well, let's come back to that. How, uh, Len, how are you doing? Pretty good. It's still still 8 o'clock early for me, but I'm surviving. <laughs> How's your uh, new puppy? He's good. <laughs> he, he snores so loudly, though. It's unbelievable. I think, I think he can't sleep in the bedroom because it, like, woke me up twice again. <laughs> wow. Or I'm going to have to get earplugs for the dog snoring. Javon, you there? I am here. It's so quiet so far. Yeah, still trying to wake up. Surprisingly, <laughs> maybe, maybe in the future we'll record a little bit later or or figure something else out. No, I like this time. Just, uh, it's one of those mornings. Cool. So, um, so I'm Justin Campbell. I'm Justin Campbell on Twitter. And first voice you heard was Pam Sell. Say hi, Pam. Hey, Pam Sally. Sally, I'm sorry. Uh, Len Smith. Hello, I'm Igdu on the internets. And Javon Derry. Hey, what's up? I'm Javon on the internet. So about the suite, it's easier to raise than to hire. Uh, it might be a bubble. Do you want to elaborate on that, Len? I just threw it out there for discussion. I, I don't necessarily believe it's true. I'm not sure. I really know enough about the economics of the tech industry to even start speculating. But I just wanted to see if any of you guys had a take on it. You know, it's a bubble. Renaming North 3rd Street to Nerd Street. <laughs> are you a hater about nerd street i like uh, nerd street i am a hater of nerd street why i just think it's silly you have uh silicon valley and uh silicon prairie which is i believe like iowa midwest or kansas i'm not sure yeah i'm, I'm not familiar with that swath of the country <laughs> i'm just saying there's precedence for for getting uh, a name to a community that has a lot of tech companies Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, New York is Silicon Alley. You actually have, you have Silicon Beach for uh, Venice Beach nice. in San Diego. I don't think Seattle has a name. I think they just win because they have Microsoft and Amazon. I don't think they have to have a special name. They're just Seattle. <laughs> so I think they're doing okay. Microsoft country. Yeah. And Bezos country. Bezos? How, how do you say his name? Jeff Bezos? Bezos? Oh, okay. What's his face? Amazon. I think it's Bezos. I'm not sure though. So you would not name it Jervon? I would not name it. It's, I don't know. I feel like programmers are kind of prima donnas. <laughs> it just adds to it. So. Do you feel left out not being in it on Nerd Street and being in a tech company? No, I actually like our location. And I live on Nerd Street, so. North? I, I just don't like it. I mean, like if you went to the, the, the launch event that they had during Tech Week, they were kind of I mean, you could tell, like, so Alex um, Hillman of Indie Hall, you know, he really uh, pushes that it's not about tech companies, but it really seems like the city, like the city is supporting that initiative because they hear Nerd Street and they think tech companies, 
where um, I think some of the people on on Third Street are trying to push it. Like you know, I don't know. I, this is kind of like people like have you know opinions on this where they're either like very forward or they just think it's silly. But the STEAM kind of movement, like wrapping up arts into STEM um, to try and you know raise arts to the importance that kind of STEM gets. Oh, um, yeah, the people the people who are for it um, are like, well, arts are really important, and the people who are kind of against it are like, well, arts are good in their own right. You don't have to. A Trojan horse them with math <laughs> like uh that so it's kind of a mixed thing but I mean third street does have a ton of uh you know a ton of art related things you got first Friday that's principally on uh third street I mean I live on fourth street where the fabric district is so fashion is uh down here we should also explain what nerd street is assuming we ever get a listener who doesn't live in Philadelphia <laughs> go ahead Lynn. Um, Why, yes, Lynn. <laughs> yes, the city of Philadelphia officially recognizes <clears throat> Nerd Street as, like, what would you call it? Uh, a district? Like a, um, it's not, it's not even like a district, it's just like, I guess, it has a neighborhood, uh, almost. I mean, kind of like, like the neighborhood has signs, so the, the neighborhood is the, the, the gay district in Philly. But like, it's, I think it's modeled after that kind of thing of, you know, this neighborhood has this kind of unifying theme. Right, and this whole thing started kind of colloquially, like seeing that the signs for North Third Street <clears throat> just said N Third, and it kind of looked like uh, nerd. And being that there were many tech businesses on that street, people just started referring to it as as Nerd Street. A few months ago, Philadelphia officially designated uh, North Third Street uh, between Market and Gerard, I believe, as uh, mm-hmm. Nerd Street. And we got up some new signs that say Nerd Street with a uh, spelled N3RD Street put up, I think, on Market Streets and Spring Garden Streets. Yeah, and I think there's there's an there's a plan to add more along Third Street. So, but those were the first ones because I on on launch day I saw it on um, on Spring Garden. I think it's great reclaiming the language. Reclaiming. I like that reclaiming the language. Yeah, but well, what I'm interested in is like how what people will think of the Nerd Street sign in five years, you know, like the like Fabric Row, like where that's the neighborhood I live in. It's on on Fourth Street, and it's a it's historically and it's historically the Fabric District, um, kind of like Seventh Avenue in New York, but I mean on a smaller scale because it's in Philadelphia. Um, but supposedly some New York people like to come to Fabric Row in Philadelphia because the prices are better. I mean, Fabric Row has been a like, it's just, it is what it is. And I wonder what it'll be like, or kind of like how, how the terminology will bleed out from the, uh, the tech and arts community. So like when, when Joe Philly, you know, is like, oh yeah, I'm going to go like get a sandwich on Nerd Street. Like, what, when shall that day be or will that day ever come? Yeah, I don't know what the, uh, the visibility is of, that being Nerd Street outside of the tech community and maybe people that follow Philadelphia politics. I think the influence would more be towards tech companies looking for an office and potentially preferring to be on Third Street so they could say they're on Nerd Street. <laughs> so, yeah. kind of, so like kind of building that district and then like that kind of, as it continues to build, it becomes more and more obvious. Kind of like, I mean, um, I guess what I would, what I would call downtown, like the Rittenhouse business district. Yeah. Like that's like, if you work for a law office, <laughs> that is where you work. Um, like that is where, where business happens in Philadelphia. 
So the three of you live in the city. I happen to live in the suburbs over the bridge in Jersey and, and previously in the western suburbs in the main line. And, and Nerd Street for me, uh, Old City, is a lot more difficult to get to from the suburbs. The closest packed coast station for me right now is 8th and Market, which Eighth is only yeah. like a five-block walk, which isn't terrible. Uh, and then if you're coming from regional rail, from like uh, any any suburb around Philadelphia, uh, it's about... I think uh, t- 10th and Market, 11th and Market is... 11th, yeah, Market yeah, East Station. Market East Station. Uh, so you can you can transfer to another train, which is a subway, or I guess you could drive in. But yeah, it makes sense that the way that public transportation is set up and that the the center of business in Philadelphia is in the center center city and... Around, yeah, it's by suburban. Yeah, and, ra- and around also uh, around 11th Street and around uh, 30th Street, like the Sears Center. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are, that was very intentional, though, building the Sierra Center to try and build up that district. Yep. Um, and, and Market East is definitely not built up. No. Although there are a lot of businesses around there that I wasn't aware of, uh, including the tech community, like RG Metrics down there. Promptworks will soon be there. Yeah. Oh, but I mean, but they're down on, they're on Walnut Street. So that's, that's kind of a, that's more, I, that's, I would call that Midtown. Mm versus at Market Street is where it gets kind of sketchy. True. <laughs> the space between Midtown and Chinatown. So, uh, back to this tweet. <laughs> it's, it's always thrown around a lot that it's really hard to hire people, but, but I've seen a lot of blog posts. We haven't linked any because I didn't know you were talk about this, but there's been a lot of blog posts about that that is a, um, not, not an actual issue, that, that people are not looking in the right places, that there actually are, there is a lot of talent uh, available uh, working for a consulting company that's trying to find uh, a very specific skill level and, how do I say this, not everybody wants to be a consultant. Some people would rather work on product or work for a company. Um, we, we definitely have a problem trying to find enough people to, to fill client work. I think a lot of it is that people who have businesses um, are kind of used to the idea that like, oh, if I put out a job listing, then I will hire someone mm. or like, and we don't really have like a, you can't like put a sign in the window of your software development shop and wait for, you know, <laughs> a great engineer to walk by like you would, you know, for like, you know, a sandwich shop where you need extra help. So I think it's just that, and especially like, because I, I think, because online job applications are totally ruined. Like you don't want to list a job online because you'll get like 800 people and 900 of them are unqualified. Yeah. Um, so it's just a waste of time. I, I mean, I, I got my first job actually through finding like a kind of a buried job listing through like it was listed on like a, you know, kind of side blog that someone kept of, of gigs running around. And, and that's how I got into the industry without really knowing many people. And so, but ever since then, it, it really is a lot of who you know. And some people are better at that than others. Like I know I, I met a guy who, was was getting a job because was looking for a job and I, I i checked him out and i saw that he you know he put on like social media like months ago that he was you know a developer looking for a job and like i don't i don't know how much more obvious you get than that and uh but he just he didn't have the kind of network strength that some people have that i think is actually rarer than people might think yeah so so there's you know, we all go to tech meetups and yeah, exactly. we, we know a lot of people, um, but there are a lot of qualified people that don't do that and nor should they need to do that to find a job. Yeah. I think. 
so how do, how do you find, you know, qualified talent that isn't attending user groups? Like, I get maybe the answer is that they should be attending user groups. No, but I, I, I like what you said earlier is that, I mean, there's plenty of people who, um, I mean, I think it's totally okay to have a job that you like, but not, you know, have excessive interest. I mean, I know we're, we're on talking our tech podcast right now, but that's because we also, we're just, we're pretty into this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's definitely not required. And I mean, there's, you know, there's also a reason why there's hopefully, you know, more listeners than there are podcasts because there are people, people, uh, can participate by listening and watching versus necessarily, you know, attending and taking time out of their busy schedules or, you know, I mean, you, you say it's hard to get to center city. A lot of people, I mean, I run the JavaScript user group and I mean, it, it just gets me every time when someone sends me a message is like, oh, well, it would take me an hour and a half to get into the city. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I, I didn't tell you you have to come to my user group. If you want to come, great. But like, you can start your own user group in your, you know, town if you really want to. Um, but I mean, don't tell me how difficult it is for you to get to my user group. Like, you know, either do it or, you know, like find another thing to do. So we're trying to do more um, in our user group. We are doing more uh, like having a diversity of like there might be like some weekend events coming up uh this summer because sometimes some people have a very hard time getting to things on the weekends some people have a lot easier time getting to things on the weekends that's a great idea um so it just really depends um so we just try and do a diversity of things like kind of i kind of like um i guess has the ruby group been doing ruby lunch i i think i accidentally turned off all my meetup notifications but i, I really liked that i really liked ruby lunch so I the too. i don't think it's happened for quite a few months I mean, yeah, we probably took a break in winter. But so, yeah, so for listeners, the Ruby user group in Philly um, does a, a Ruby lunch in, we were talking about downtown Philadelphia. Um, and so it's it makes it easy for people who are only downtown during the day, who might live, you know, kind of far away, uh, you know, have things to get to in the evening. So they come for Ruby lunch and just meet with a bunch of Ruby developers. We've had, you know, as many as like something like 30 people show up, I think, uh, kind of take over that. The, the second floor of Cozy. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think people like it a lot. Yeah, so I don't, I don't want it to be a requirement to come to the meetups and stuff, but I guess when you come to the meetups, or, or at least come to a few of them, like you tend to be more involved and more I, enthusiastic. Yeah. And I don't know if I, I would like someone on my team that's not like that. So it's like kind of a, I guess you can find some people that have other obligations that, that don't show up but have the same characteristics. But I think it's harder to find those. Well, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a few months ago, which is sort of about ageism in the industry, where a lot of like you know going to user groups is kind of skews towards people that are maybe single or in their twenties and with no kids that can you know spend a night hanging out with coworkers or, or colleagues, um, industry folk. Uh, for me personally, like I, I find it harder and harder as I get older to to stay downtown past you know six o'clock and and have a good reason for it. So getting back to hiring, though, I mean we're talking about people being separate, like separated from the community, which I think is a bad thing. But I also don't believe there are talented people sitting around, super skilled developers who can't find a job. Yeah, I mean I don't know. I don't know if anyone's saying that. They're saying that companies have spots that don't have people to fill them. 
Right. And we started talking about community uh, and I love to talk about community, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that's like the biggest problem for, for people who are skilled. I think community would be super important for, you know, more new people. Um, because of course, you know, having a, a connection to a person, uh, will help you get your foot in the door. But I, I don't believe like skilled people are having the same problem. I think there's a lot of, I, I personally have a lot of, you know, friends of friends that, maybe do uh, Java or C-sharp and are, are ha- happily uh, employed, but maybe looking for something different. And it, it's difficult for them to make a jump from working in a, in a large enterprise business in the suburbs to working for maybe, you know, a, a Ruby or Python shop in the city and probably making more money. Like they've, they've applied to jobs like that and they don't have any previous experience with Ruby or Python. But so then they're, they're no longer considered as, you know, they don't go to user groups. They don't do those sort of things. <clears throat> but that's, that's, that's a different topic. We're talking, we're talking about it from, from the other side. We're talking about from the employee side, not the employer side about, about this bubble. So I think we kind of <clears throat> kill this topic. Um, <laughs> Did we? <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, I would vote to move on if anyone else. Yeah, um, definitely. Let's, um, Talk about something else. So, uh, we talked the last two times about TDD is dead. And I just saw this morning that, uh, DHH posted another blog post, uh, this time unrelated to TDD, but instead, uh, sort of attacking responsive design. <laughs> so, so you got tired of attacking testing and is moving on to attacking yeah. the designers? Yeah, maybe he's just, you know, targeting each community and, Maybe it's maybe it's one a month because I mean like testing was kind of April, um, and so we're we're about mid May. It's about due for for some some internet fighting. <laughs> so I don't know. I I I'm I'm checking out the article right now, but um, see, I think you'll have a problem because the problem with uh, you know designers and front end people is they just tend to be nice. Uh, so I don't think <laughs> you'll have as much luck getting them to fight as Ruby people who. Um, I mean, I, I was looking at this this morning to look at the, some of the TDDs dead kind of stuff. Um, because, uh, I'm working a little bit of it into, into the talk this week, just because it's relevant. Um, I'll probably cut it out in later versions, but, um, but just like, there really is, there really is this thing about in the Ruby community. I kind of ignored it whenever people would do it, but I mean, I, I helped, uh, someone who was preparing a talk and, and, you know, their talk, they're pretty much a, you know, TDD or, you know, TDD or GTFO. Um, and it's, I, I never understood that in the Ruby community in general. I mean, I, I like test driven, um, but I like testing more. Um, so like, I, I never understood the, I guess the value that people have in zealotry. It's it. Well, Oh, <laughs> oh man. What? I, it's, they're not. They're two different things. I think. I, I don't. I don't yeah, believe. I don't believe in. TDD, yeah. Yeah. The purpose of TDD is not uh, verification. It's, it's a. It's a method of design. And writing your test first, and seeing that it fails, and then seeing that it passes, is where the design is derived from. Writing. I don't believe writing a test after you've written the code does that much of anything. That's more of a QA task. And if you want to give developers QA tasks, I mean, that's, that's one question, but I don't believe that's writing tests afterwards 
is is very useful at all. Like if I've written the code, unless we we have some kind of code coverage metric, I don't I don't believe writing a test does much. And if you skip if you skip seeing the red, you, you kind of don't prove that your test works. Like I think that's an integral part seeing a, a test fail and then making sure that the code that you've written is sufficient to make it green it kind of just proves that your test is testing something. Yeah, and I, I've also, I agree, and I've heard test after um, described as uh, making concrete your poor design sometimes. Like, I've, I've found a lot of times where I've written tests after the fact. But I, I, guess, I guess, let's back up. Is there a difference between TDD and test before and test after? Like, is TDD and test before the same thing? Well, TDD is a very specific recipe. It's write a test, make sure that it turns red, write only enough code to make it green, nothing more, and write the ugliest code that you can to make it turn green as quick as possible. And then once once it's green, you have the safety to refactor. See, I think I, I do more test-first methodology. I don't, I don't write the ugliest code possible to make it just pass because I know that you know, there's probably some other code that I'll need to write down the line or refactor it later, which is, which I guess TDD would advocate for doing later. Um, I, I find that for very small components that I will do TDD and, and write the minimal amount of code to make it pass. But I think a lot of times I'm just writing a test first to, to verify what I'm doing is correct when I change code or add code. And I think a lot of, I guess the reason we're so prone to, to zealotry about it is because I think, I, I know me personally have just seen my world go upside down once I've actually embraced TDD and your mind has to break a little bit. You have to really accept this limitation that you need to write a test first and not start thinking about the implementation because I think as, as developers, our first instinct when presented with a problem is to think about solving it. And that's not the important part. It doesn't matter what algorithm or what code or what little Ruby trick you use to make it work. All that matters is the API for that method that you call and the fact that it works. Whatever is in that implementation uh, is immaterial. Absolutely. I think it's also, I mean, so the thing about describing the, the test-driven methodology is that it's not I don't find that tests are necessary to do that. It really is just, I mean, I guess it's a, it's a, a mind hack because developers don't think about behavior. Like, like you said, they don't think about behavior, um, as the first class citizen before implementation. Um, and they get so wrapped up in the implementation that they don't really think about what the necessary behavior is. But you can define that by, I don't know, writing documentation in your code before you write your code. Um, I mean, I guess that's, that's something that I might do more than uh, necessarily doing red, green, red, green. Um, and then I write my test at, at some point, sometimes first, sometimes after. Um, but to also to uh, say, um, oh, if I give it this, then what happens? And is that what I expect to happen? Um, so I think there's, I think so, a lot of it is that there's more flexibility in the world than people give it. So I think that's, True, just for verification purposes, but as Len mentioned, TDD really guides your design, and I think until you have that aha moment with it, or at least trying to write your test first, you, I think you'll always kind of argue the point of, I mean, they're both okay, but once you see the eye-opening experience with TDD or test 
truly testing first with design um, in mind, he'll kind of advocate for it more and see more of the difference. I mean, I don't tell anyone that which one they should do or if they do one is wrong, but I do think TDD has a significant benefit to it. Jervon, do you TDD um, all Rails code, including controllers and, and JavaScript and user-facing features, or do you tend to stick to smaller you know, JS libraries or, or classes in Ruby? Uh, I don't TDD everything. I used to not TDD controllers, but some people kind of sell me on it, and it depends like, if it's a nasty controller, and it shouldn't be a nasty controller. But I lean towards more of like a acceptance test and then unit test, and then jump back up to acceptance test. And I've been writing a lot of JavaScript lately, so just JavaScript unit test. And sometimes I don't test at all, guys. I just go for it. Get off the call. <laughs> but the thing is that when you're talking to people who don't test at all, and you're telling them, if you don't do it this one particular way, then you are wrong, you are telling them, like, don't bother, like, you aren't good enough to do this. But like, that's a- how it comes off to, to people new to it. But there could also be another danger, and I, we've probably all written those test suites, and it can turn people off as well. Like, when you write those tests that have way more setup than the implementation is, and then, uh, again, because you're not TDDing, you might be, like, trying to test this bad design where you have like a million things to collaborate and set up and then they change one thing and all their tests break and then they're just convinced that testing is horrible because you know they've, they, they're spending more time maintaining their tests and I think that's can be a symptom of, of not doing TDD. I think it's a common issue on uh, legacy apps that have not been you know tested or, or, or TDD from the start and then you have this uh, application architecture that you try to introduce this new TDD component into it needs all these other things because the other components may not have been designed the same way that this component is being designed. So a question for Pam. So if, uh, so if you write the test after, like, I feel like you're in the mindset of only knowing, or you're only focused on how your code works because you've used it before. And then if you try and refactor it, like there might be something that you weren't that you didn't think of because you're like you're so focused on like the one path that you're constantly practicing in the code, and then I don't think you can refactor with confidence. What was the question? It wasn't really a question. It was just like more of a thought process of like. I mean, I think uh, like actually, semi- what, Len, were you the one who said that it it becomes a QA task? Right. I, I don't. I don't believe verification. I don't. I don't want to derail this, but I don't believe verification should necessarily be on the onus of developers. I mean, see, that's. I, I disagree with that. Like, I think. Um, I think there's this kind of like that developers think they don't have responsibility for QA, and I think that that just leads to one angry QA people, which is not a good idea. Um, but two, I mean, it's as developers, it's your job to to do bug, bu- low bug, low defect code. And so doing some QA work is is a good thing. Like it's not, you know, uh, it's not less developer-y, makes you better at it. Okay, yeah, let me let me walk that back. I, I wouldn't suggest, <laughs> I would suggest shipping code that is full of bugs. But I, I do would say that it's more important 
uh, instead of having automated verification to have a code of the highest quality. I don't think there's, I don't think one has to win. <laughs> I think you can have both. For me personally, I typically write tests first um, enough so that I'm confident that what I'm delivering works and it can be refactored and still work. It, it, I mean, if it's refactored and the test still passes, then the code still works. If I don't have confidence in that, then I usually go back and either add tests or start over. I think some people though, ship code with just tests and they never sanity check. And that's where I think Pam is trying to make her point. Mm. Yeah, that there's there's a place in the in-between. And panelism on our first call, when I went on Diatribe of, I think in, I believe in TDD is a, a, like a process of design, but then in Rails, most of the design decisions uh, have been made. Like in, if you're writing a controller, there's not really much designing you're going to be doing inside those, that definition. So then maybe TDD is, is of more limited value. You guys have anything else you want to talk about today? I guess we should do picks of what we learned. This is coming up to 8.45. What's the, the what? So uh, many podcasts do picks. Uh, I don't think we did this last time, by the way. Did we? Yeah, we did. Um, we were going to try picking something we learned each week. Uh, but in my opinion, I don't think it went so well last episode. <laughs> how, did, how does it go badly? Uh, it was... It was uh, not interesting. <laughs> no one learned anything? Uh, and personally, I haven't really thought about what I learned this week. But yeah. if I go last, I'm sure I come up with something. I learned that if you are American and you go to India, you will get sick. <laughs> That's what I learned last week. Did you learn that the hard way? I learned it the hard way. I didn't believe it, and then I learned it. Uh, I think I learned the, the coolest thing I learned this week is about the active record calculations module, which allows you to run aggregate functions on uh, active record objects and um, not, I think all of them do not return uh, objects, they just return either a hash or an array. So if you ever want to do like a summer average on certain columns, um, check out the active record calculations. Does that save you from writing the SQL to do it? Yes. Oh, interesting. So I initially wrote SQL, and then a coworker of mine pointed me in that direction. Is that coworker Justin? No. No. <laughs> so that would be it for me. When? So I learned when you have a dog, Philadelphia becomes a totally different city. <laughs> when, you walk, when you walk down the street, everyone just loves you and says hi. To you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when do you think that will get old? Never. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I learned that if you barbecue brisket and have a hole in your foil, it will dry out. <laughs> Is that... Well, the more you know. Yep. <laughs> How big was your hole? 
Uh, it was only about two inches across. It was a little gash in the bottom, and I'm assuming for about seven or eight hours, liquid was just dropping out of the bottom of it. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so that's it. Uh, you can find show notes for this episode on turing.cool slash two. Uh, and you can also find us on Twitter at touringcool. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Cool. See you guys. Later. Yeah.